might be actually the first time ever, uh, tell the truth. <laughs> uh, and people will probably not believe it, uh, but I don't mind. As every good son uh, in a Freudian context, I'm also trying to kill my father. <laughs> Welcome to Such That Cast, the podcast dedicated to getting to know some of the most influential and interesting philosophers of today. My name is Johnny Suraker, and I'll be your host through what is hopefully going to be an interesting and entertaining journey through some pretty interesting minds. Wow, that sounded kind of pretentious. Actually, just allow me to skip this formal language and talk to you directly, because that's what this podcast is all about. This entire project is born out of late-night pub crawls with philosophers. Uh, I found that this is a time when the good stories come out, that's when the real opinions and feelings come out, that's often when the outrageous ideas come out, and that's precisely what I want to try to capture with this podcast. You can read more about the background and aims of this podcast series on the website, suchthatcast.com, but now I just wanted to get us started with the very first episode without much further ado. Now, I should say that the setting for this very first episode was kind of strange. The interview was done at the AISBIA CAP conference in Birmingham, UK, and I really wanted to have Luciano Floridi as my first guest. However, the only time possible was at 8am on a Wednesday morning, not really the best time for sharing a bottle of wine, which was part of the purpose of this thing. Anyway, as I was pacing the business center waiting for a Floridia, I, I kind of hated myself for even starting this project. Uh, as with most things in life, it would have been so much easier not to do anything. Uh, but then Floridia enters, uh, we steal some coffee from a workshop next door, and it's a free fall. It's a, it's a leap of faith, and I have no idea how this is going to work out. Oh, and to add to all of this, I talk in this interview about people having misunderstood and misrepresented Floridia's philosophy. To be honest with you, I've been very guilty of that myself, uh, even at conference presentations. Oh, by the way, if you're wondering why I'm ranting about this and you just want me to cut to the chase, well, part of the purpose of this podcast is that I want to connect with all of you, not because I'm even commensurable with the guys on the show, but I, I think the interviews will make more sense if you know a little bit about where I'm coming from as well. Uh, and I really want that to be a two-way thing. I want to know more about you as well. Uh, please write me with ideas for future guests, for uh, interesting topics to pick up, and generally any suggestions you may have for improving or extending this podcast. Please let me know, and all the contact details are on suchthatcast.com. Okay, now I'm starting to agree with you. Enough with this intro. So without further ado, here's the... F oh, actually, let me just give you a cliffhanger before we proceed. Um, in this episode, Thority reveals a driving force that he has never announced publicly before, something that puts his entire project in a brand new light. I really think that some of you listeners, especially those of you who have really studied this work, will be flabbergasted. I'll get back to you with some further comments afterwards, but here we go. The very first episode of Such That Cast and Luciano Floridi. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm a bit nervous. This is... First of all, the first time I'm trying out this equipment, uh, and Murphy's Law is invincible, <laughs> and uh, it's far from ideal conditions as well. So I, I understand you have a whole uh, plan of interviews, um, but have you decided basically how many, or 
you see how it goes and then what i'm hoping for is to uh at least in the beginning update it on a weekly basis on a weekly basis. Oh, wow. uh, so i'm gonna try to build a backlog in the beginning okay uh, and then when i have seven six or seven then i'm gonna launch it yeah and uh is there a particular theme in the the main theme is basically conversations with philosophers uh, okay genuine conversations uh, right. i've been listening to a lot of these other philosophy podcasts lately some of them are excellent but mm-hmm. they're very restrained in a sense as well they uh there's one topic it's bite size uh and typically you don't get to know the philosopher behind and then that's oh, part I of what i want to okay, do yes i understand better now so you want to have a real sort of long uh conversation with yeah, exactly. private insights yeah, yeah. <laughs> the kind of stuff that happens at bars at night that nobody oh, else sees. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe some background noise won't be too bad. <laughs> yeah. That was actually what, part of what I was hoping as well, that uh, this could be done over a bottle of wine or something, but uh, it's 8 a.m., so that might not be the best thing to do. <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I am sitting here with Luciano Floridi. Uh, as I was just saying, the conditions are far from ideal. Uh, it's 8 a.m., we're in rainy Birmingham. Uh, I just had a horrible uh, removal of a wisdom tooth, so I'm also high on painkillers. That adds to the confusion. Another reason why I'm a little bit nervous, as I said, is that, uh, of course, I have enormous respect for you and your work. Uh, And you can also be a little bit intimidating sometimes. Uh, You have a bit of a reputation for that, I think. Uh, I actually remember the first time we met. I think it was back in 2003. And I had just started looking at computer ethics as a field, and I was very, very disappointed. And I thought most of the work was rubbish, really. Uh, Then you came to my university in Norway, and we sat down and had a chat, and I told you that, honestly, your work inspired me a lot, because I think 90% of the rest is really crap. And you told me that, no, that's wrong. It's more like 95% is crap. Uh, so what do you think about the state of the field now? Do you think it's improving? Well, I think that uh, it has improved, but just because more people are involved, and therefore the percentage remains the same. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that uh, more people, uh, there's, uh, there's more to choose from. Um, well, quite seriously, yes. I'm sorry to have that reputation of uh, an intimidating character. I think that uh, the real strength of control and uh, the power of uh, aggressiveness should be exercised first of all <laughs> against oneself. So. <laughs> but I'm uh, no, I'm getting better. Uh, at least I'm told <laughs> I'm getting more mellow <laughs> right. by the year. So who knows? By the time I retire, I might actually be <laughs> a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it um, kind of makes sense as well because uh, your theory is very widely disseminated. A lot of people have read your work, but a lot of people have just read tiny pieces of your work as well Indeed, yes. so again and again uh, the same uh, misconceptions and the same misunderstandings pop up in conference questions and so forth uh, so I can understand that you can get a bit annoyed about this, those <laughs> same questions as well. it, it can happen uh, the thing is that um, it's not just computer ethics or whichever way we want to call it information ethics or ICE as Charles says our colleague uh, mm-hmm. likes to call it information and computer ethics um, it's not just uh, the area which seems to be um, full of um, attempts, I say, not entirely successful. <laughs> um, some time ago I was speaking to uh, some scientists, as it happens, and uh, we were discussing uh, the state of philosophy in general, not, not even computer ethics. So the, the joke, which probably reminds me of the intimidating nature <laughs> of my comments sometimes, the joke that I cracked was that um, um, philosophy, the best philosophy is like um, uh, roses. 
and roses unfortunately need a lot of compost. <laughs> so uh, the, the fact that uh, some, uh, as you define it, technically rubbish <laughs> is around um, has more seriously uh, does serve and has a purpose. The purpose is a sort of a Darwinian environment where lots of ideas are tried and uh, a number of people presents a variety of views. And inevitably, uh, when, there's, no, when the wealth of ideas and views grows, uh, so does the sometimes level of silliness <laughs> right. or shallowness. Um, I don't take it as a sign of uh, weakness of the field. Uh, it's almost the opposite. I mean, the, the more silly things are flying, uh, the healthier it looks like. The larger the gene pool. The, the, exactly. Yeah. So there's a there's a, a wider uh, context from which to pull the, the good uh, uh, trends and so on. It's way more uh, dangerous to have um, what I call in other contexts a, a scholastic, well-defined, constrained. Uh, area of research where uh, the agenda is very clear, all the guys know each other, and I say guys because of course it's a, it's a male dominated uh, discipline yep. um, and uh, overall um, there's not that sort of a bubbling up of ideas now back to the, your comments about misconceptions, in a context where there's this bubbling up of ideas where there's a, uh, a lot of uh, different attempts to move left, right, top, down and so on a couple of things. One, um, there's obviously a lot of interest. I mean, it, people wouldn't crowd around these areas if they didn't feel that it's exciting, it's interesting, there's novelties, there's work to be done, True. and so on. It's the, it's the gold rush. I mean, of course, lots of people will make nothing of it, and a few will become no, millionaires. Metaphorical gold. Metaphorically, yeah. yes. <laughs> so um, so that's... that's uh, but in a context like that, um, unfortunately, there is... As I said a moment ago, there's a rush. There's a rush to find the new idea, the new angle, to be the first to say X, Y, and Z, or to push for uh, a particular agenda. In And therefore, uh, one thing that scholastic philosophy does well, we have to concede something to the enemies, <laughs> uh, goes missing, and that's scholarship. Right. The idea that before launching oneself into a completely new field, well, reading some of the stuff carefully is important. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of us have grown up with this idea that you know, when, as an undergrad, as a graduate student, uh, the first thing you do is to make sure that you know the literature and you know it well, that you have done your homework. Now, in a sort of a, allow me to, uh, to insist on a metaphor, in a sort of cowboy pioneers context, reading the literature doesn't seem a top priority. Right. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of interest in... Um, as I said, uh, getting there first, uh, which is good and, and shows you know, the sort of lively nature of the context, but there's also a lack sometimes of attention. Now, I certainly am guilty of all of the above, rushing, not reading enough, trying to get there, uh, there as quickly as possible. Um, perhaps the only difference I can claim is that I'm, at least I'm aware of <laughs> my uh, bad behavior. <laughs> So some of the misconceptions, uh, more seriously, that uh, happen sometimes, uh, have, I've seen that they have the following nature, the following pattern. Someone has half heard, half understood, say something I said somewhere or something I wrote in a paper, which may or may not be controversial, may or may not be shallow, deep, it doesn't matter. They may find it wonderful, fantastic, 
they run with it. And it's a complete misconception. No, it's, no I never said that. Sorry, no, I, I'm glad you like it, but unfortunately that's not what I said. It's not. And I don't think I should say that because there are a number of reasons. Yeah. Example, this uh, metaphysics based on, uh, on computers, on the digital ontology, I never argue for that. I think it's a silly idea, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would not like to be quoted as someone who you know, believes that the world is made of digits. And stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Or you know, someone reads something, you know, has heard me saying something, and thinks, oh, that's preposterous. That's compl- it's a complete idiocy. And they run away again with criticism. and say, oh, that's, no, Luciano said this and that. And of course, it's, com- it's a complete idiocy. And then, you know, once again, you have to raise your hand and say, no, I'm afraid I didn't say that. <laughs> yes, you're right. It is silly, but that's exactly why I didn't say it. <laughs> yeah. so. I think an example you used once was uh, because one of the most common misconceptions is your uh, notion of a minimal uh, overridable value uh, just uh, by virtue of being ex- an existing entity. Uh, and a common misconception, I think you put it, that uh, thesis is then as much worth as Shakespeare. Uh, Indeed, <laughs> yes, yes, and that uh, there's no difference <laughs> between chocolate and cack. Yeah. <laughs> of course not. Uh, I mean, that, that thesis, which is um, a, mom- a moment of humbleness on my side, uh, is not even terribly original or entirely mine. I mean, there's a whole, and this is not an attempt to build a reputation by quoting other people. It's just acknowledging that there is a whole tradition in philosophy, um, especially the Platonic tradition, uh, which has seen um, or has tried to clarify the possibility of seeing being capital B and goodness capital G as two sides of the same coin. Now, this may strike immediately as weird, like in what sense to be and to be good are almost synonymous. Mm And of course, it doesn't mean, therefore, that, well, it's intuitive, obviously, anyone should agree, and uh, there's no need for any philosophical investigation. But the thesis, in and of itself, is not as stupid as some of the things I've been uh, uh, accused of, as, for example, oh, Luciano believes that the, a spider and a human being have the same body, yeah. or that if you destroy a whole planet or destroy a single grain of sand, well, there's no difference. <laughs> well, <laughs> how on earth? <laughs> so the whole point for that particular thesis, for example, is to do the hard work, trying to make sense of a whole tradition, including myself as perhaps the last representative, who is trying to see in the very fact that something exists, the uh, initial step of something that is positive, something that could be respected. Of course, as you mentioned, overridably, hugely overridably. Mm-hmm. It's not, of course, there's no doubt that between you know, breaking a glass or killing someone, <laughs> exactly. that's, that's just too idiotic to Pre- discuss. Precisely. <laughs> it's not worth the, our philosophical time. <laughs> Is that, does it feel sort of almost insulting sometimes that, do you really think I believe that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's the pattern that normally, something that I teach to my graduate students sometimes is that if you think that that's too stupid to be believed, then be generous enough with your interlocutor thinking that maybe he or she has already and quite clearly grasped the same point as you did, and therefore that the whole discussion is one step ahead, that we are not talking about the usual silly things like, is there or is there not a world uh, out there, or am I dreaming, am I a butterfly? These are jokes. 
these are ways of doing philosophy in a pub and entertaining for kids. It's way more serious and way more dangerous. Yeah, precisely. And that kind of brings us back to the point of, of being well-read and then doing, doing the work you have to do. Uh, and you did a lot of that work in Italy uh, originally, where you did your bachelor and your master. Yeah. Um, I was just talking to somebody who had a similar uh, start to their career before, um, basically saying that Italian academia is, is horrible in some respects, but when it comes to laying the groundwork, it's, it's, it's a very good education. Um, would you agree with that? I think that that's, that's a fair uh, representation of what Italian academia was a few years ago. Um, I had the uh, pleasure and pain of <laughs> having the experience of Italian, um, Italian academia, both as, a, as an undergraduate and uh, as a professor. So I may say that I saw both sides. As an undergraduate, I did not understand the value of the education that I was being given, and that's a bit of a regret. So I could have been a little bit more respectful t- towards scholars and philosophers and historians of ideas who at least might not have been internationally famous, but at least knew what they were talking about, seriously, yeah. deeply, with true scholarship and an enormous amount of knowledge, understanding, and dedication to the teaching profession. Maybe not so much as researchers, many of them, or at least not as, as well as they thought they were doing as researchers, but in terms of uh, getting an education as an undergraduate, that was a fantastic experience. Mm-hmm. I realized much, much later. But luckily, no. Some experiences, if you, even if you do not realize you are having them while you are having them, they still <laughs> leave a trace. <laughs> so I did get an education, even if I didn't know <laughs> that I was getting one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when I went back to Italy for a number of mistakes, <laughs> I should have never even tried. <laughs> many, many, many years later, uh, so I, I did my master, my PhD, my postdoc uh, in England. I ended up in Oxford. I spent uh, more than a decade there uh, as a lecturer and uh, as, a, as a fellow in colleges in different different stages. At a certain point, I tried desperately to go back to Italy uh, for obvious reasons. Um, the weather. The weather, the food, uh, <laughs> my family, <laughs> the language, and so on. Yeah. Uh, That was a mistake because I realized that Italian academia had changed profoundly uh, and for the worst. Oh. And it has been going downhill ever since. We have, uh, I say we so that I can take a little bit of responsibility, although I don't see why, but let's say we <laughs> have allowed uh, some of the most incompetent uh, and uh, uh, less prepared uh, individuals uh, to acquire so much power within a, an academic world that is dominated by centers of uh, almost uh, uh, medieval sort of uh, uh, policies. We have allowed that to happen to such an extent that today uh, I would not recommend anyone to, uh, of course with the usual exceptions generally, but I wouldn't recommend anyone to get uh, an undergraduate degree in Italy. Uh, That's very sad, uh, is academia uh, killing itself, committing suicide. Uh, the exceptions are obvious, there are many, uh, but they are heroic exceptions. Uh, these are, I'm talking about, without naming uh, specific colleagues, these are colleagues who are working against academia to keep academia alive. Right, exactly. And that's amazing. Right? Yeah. They are no, giving basically their uh, uh, time and efforts and uh, doing their very best 
uh, to make sure that you know, that spark uh, is not, uh, doesn't disappear. Now, uh, because you never know, uh, uh, as a student, I don't think I would feel comfortable saying, oh, yes, of course, you know, get a, an undergrad degree in Italy, and then maybe, you know, depending on your future, what you want to do, uh, uh, go elsewhere. I, I would find that uh, uh, almost unethical. It's kind of strange how these nations of, of enormous history, uh, some of the greatest thinkers in the world, uh, seem to become sort of hermetically sealed at some point. It's with Italy, with, with Russia, uh, France and Germany are improving, but uh, you've seen some well, of that there. Certainly well. Greece. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Uh, do you think it's, is it a, a sort of a pride underneath that we won't sell out? Or what do you think sort of the ultimate reason for that sort of hermetic practice in, in some countries is? Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, and is um, is a difficult one to to answer. Uh, why some countries, which obviously uh, have produced some of the most important bits of our at least Western culture, mm. uh, at a certain point uh, they seem to be unable to keep up with their pace, with their level, with their quality. Um, Precisely because you also said elsewhere that the essence of philosophy is being timely. And, and Indeed, and uh, it, it almost looks like, uh, and again, um, I'm being slightly Hegelian here, but it almost looks like that the, the, the flame of philosophy goes through different stages in different, at different times in different countries and, and develops and finds roots there where people have uh, managed to create the right circumstances. And these circumstances are very delicate. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very fine balance. So you need, of course, as Aristotle reminds us all the, all the time, you need uh, the sort of wealth and, uh, uh, and time and leisure to do philosophy. I mean, philosophy is not done when you're starving or, or when you're running for your life. Indeed. Um, but once that is uh, guaranteed, and these days is guaranteed almost in any sort of uh, uh, country, post-industrial country, um, then what makes one particular culture in a particular area of the world uh, spark and um, generate, I don't know, uh, Cambridge uh, in the uh, no, 20s and 30s, for example. Yeah. All of a sudden, you have some of the best minds all together. Right? Mm -hmm. Is that accidental? <laughs> or Athens, again, so all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> they're all there. Yeah. Uh, but the question that I often wonder, and I don't have an answer, is... Are they all there accidentally because there was the center, no, it attracted the right people at the right time and so on, or it was the right place in the right time and the right circumstances that made what otherwise would have been lost minds mm -hmm. emerge and flourish. Right, and I'm yeah. sure that, as usual, in most cases in life, the answer is half, half there, half here. So yeah. it's a bit of that, and it's a bit of the other, the other side. But there are some moments when you see immediately, you know, Germany, 19th century, all of a sudden, you move from, from Kant to Hegel through a number of amazing uh, philosophers. That, that cannot be accidental. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> that, <coughs> the notion of having the time to do research and also what you said about Italian academia also brings up another point, uh, sort of somewhat controversial point that you've uh, had before, which is that there should be a sharper separation between... Uh, between having a research career in philosophy and having a teaching career. Uh, what is the background for that view? Well, this is, um, seems to me, uh, um, I know it's, it's slightly controversial, but it's controversial is one of those things that people know and don't want to admit. Um, mm -hmm. And by people, I mean academics uh, at large, including the administrators and all the way up to the, so the usual ministerial uh, 
um, individuals. Uh, the point is quite simple. In both uh, careers, the career of a researcher and the career of a, of a teacher, uh, require huge investments uh, of um, time, resources. Uh, they're both special fields. Uh, and, of course, teaching X and doing research about Z. Uh, it becomes less and less um, clear that someone could so easily double-task by being an excellent teacher and an excellent researcher at the same time. What normally happens is that an excellent uh, researcher is, um, well, not so bad <laughs> teacher, no. or an excellent teacher uh, does some research on the side, and well, that, that's not really what it's known for. That's precisely the person who hasn't read enough and, and comes it, with the misconceptions. Exactly. And, you know. so, so the thing is, uh, uh, what happens is that um, I'm not saying that people should be you know, pushing one direction or, or the other, but there should be the possibility, the, the freedom of choice. Uh, it is not seen as something normal. That seems to me again uh, goes against both sides of the of the deal. Mm. The teacher feels that uh, is or she not good enough because he's not doing research, and the researcher is always feeling guilty because he's not teaching or he's yeah. not teaching enough. And uh, and of course, uh, it, there's, a, there's a whole war of uh, uh, regrets and uh, uh, reproaches going on. Now, you can see that in every single department, uh, at the university level, and so on. Now, why the two things should be at least potentially, I mean, possibly separated? Well, it seems to me that uh, the uni university level, uh, especially for undergraduate level, is becoming more and more, quite normally, a time where you have further education, as we normally call it uh, in the UK, that really is just further education. Not so many illusions about uh, doing courses that are halfway between advanced research and basic background uh, preparation for the next steps. Mm -hmm. Now, if that is the case, basically, if uh, a, a three years university degree in Europe has become a super high school uh, stage, well, then surely what you need are super teachers. Yep. You don't need researchers for that stage. Now, a completely different uh, matter is when, you, when we come to graduate studies, where people start their first steps in, in research, including master's students and so on. So after the three years, the, the, the bachelor uh, degree, then you need someone that does research because the only way of learning how to do research right. is to learn it by doing it with someone who is already in the trade. It's mm -hmm. like an artisan. It teaches you the, 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 the trade by well, largely showing no, through examples, joining no, the, the, the same path. So if you have this kind of picture in mind, then it's not a scandal, as many people take it to be, yeah. to argue, you know what, we, we should have lectures. I called lectures for a reason. Now, <laughs> these days, if you look at advertised job for entry-level lecturer in the UK, they seem to be a combination between the best teacher, the best researcher, the best administrator, the best grant writer, and the best uh, uh, mountain climber as well. Yep. Now, that is ridiculous. This also connects to another point of yours that, that I agree with, but which is uh, not something that's uh, heartily accepted in most circles, uh, which is that at the end of the day, taxpayers do pay our salaries. And, and I also think that we need to be conscious about that. Um, but I've been in almost literal fights over this one point. And the 
the argument on the other side seems to be that there must be some kind of foundational research in philosophy. There must be something that that is untimely, something that uh, people can do without the pressure of the marketplace. Uh, do you see that as a valid argument against that position? Um, not really. Uh, no, not because I'm against foundational research. I mean, if anything, if I'd done anything in my life, has been trying to do that you know, at whatever level, whatever quality. But that's what I'm, I'm involved in, uh, in a sort of foundational sort of project. So it would be kind of at least inconsistent to argue that that's not what we should be doing. I think I meant foundational uh, more in the sense of uh, internal to philosophy. Well, exactly. Or, uh, yeah. that, that, uh, precisely where I was, uh, was going, you're right. Uh, the problem with, with that is that uh, we heard this at this conference recently, is that the view that, again, is the rather naive, constant attempt to put everything in black and white. And on the one hand, you have... Free research, philosophy should not have any constraints. We heard, was a couple of days ago, not everything has to be determined by the market and the utility of what you do. Exactly. Of course not. But that doesn't have anything, anything to do with the fact that once you have a position at a university, there's a license to indulge in any possible pointless, ridiculous, marginal, borderline <laughs> uninteresting research just because you think that's so interesting for me yeah, yeah. well that should not be allowed or at least pressure should be exercised to make sure that if that happens well Saturday and Sundays are exactly for that kind of research mm -hmm. you want to do that that's your free time when it comes to research as you said uh, I agree with you in the background there are responsibilities there is an accountability for what you're doing now of course like in mathematics, like in all the sciences, my wife's a neuroscientist, so I have a exposure to that as well. You know that there's a lot of foundational, in the other sense, research that has to be done. It's the usual looking at the roots of the tree to understand whether the branches can go uh, and very far. But that is completely different from saying, oh, philosophy can be self-referential, an internal dialogue, a discourse in and of itself, that has nothing to do with the world, nothing to do with the taxpayer, who at the end of the day, and that day comes pretty soon, says, well, you asked me for money to do this research. What you did is so and so. And I do not find it interesting, helpful, enlightening, um, applicable in any way. Can you tell me how you spent your money? Yeah. And uh, this is the, the parable you know, of, the, uh, of the coins in, uh, in, in the New Testament. Now, we are given the extraordinary freedom to do something that we believe, certainly as philosophers, is the best way of spending one's human life. Because someone, somewhere, put the money away to allow us that fantastic indulgence. It's quite remarkable. Yeah. Do we want to give something back? Or do we want to be the spoiled brat who, having inherited now, Dad's fortune <laughs> is going to buy a Ferrari and no, have holiday because I like it so much. Yeah. This is so rewarding for me <laughs> or my community or my research group yeah. or my place. I mean, there I find it unethical. So if anything, now we should look at uh, what the best, the best philosophers have always done. You pick up 10 top philosophers of your list and you will see that those philosophers were doing fantastic research of the foundational kind that we mentioned before, not the self-referential kind. And at the same time, they were concerned and involved with what was, that, what was happening at their time, in their society, outside academia. And it can be anything. It can be someone who then became 
involved in politics, someone who made huge mistakes, who died going all the way to Sweden, <laughs> and it was too cold, <laughs> but he was trying to make a difference yeah. because there was a queen to educate, <laughs> or someone who, as I referred recently, you know, took three trips to Syracuse <laughs> because there was a, a dictator <laughs> uh, to educate. Uh, or someone who you know, thought that uh, the young Alexander deserved a better philosophy. Now, think of that, and you see that our philosophers were not locked in a room talking to each other on pointless uh, things um, from uh, something like uh, the Gettier problem or the trolley problem yeah. and a long, long list of scholastic things. They have lost. They did have initially some, a point, but they have lost entirely any sense whatsoever. And a lot of that is connected to the more uh, prestigious universities as well. Uh, and a good friend of mine just got a position now at Oxford. Uh, and you yourself, as a relatively young researcher, came to Oxford. And Oxford is also notorious for being a, a, a rough environment, uh, being a sort of uh, maybe even backstabbing at times. Uh, what was your first impressions when you came to Oxford? And, and, and would you have any advice for somebody who is freshly coming to one of these very prestigious places? Well, when I went to Oxford, uh, uh, I was... Um, an outsider as many others, um, meaning that uh, anyone who has not uh, received an undergraduate degree, we don't even talk about master or PhD or anything else, if you haven't uh, received your undergraduate degree from Oxford, you're not an Oxford man right. or an Oxford woman in particular case, uh, which means that you are forever uh, and will remain forever an outsider. <laughs> now, that cannot be a, a big deal, um, but uh, it does mean that there's a there's a a even more inner circle of the boys and the girls. Now, those who were undergraduates there and uh, basically grew up within the system. Now, that doesn't really bode well for innovation and openness. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't, of course. It's a, it's a great university and uh, one of the greatest in the world. Uh, inevitably, you find uh, all the good and bad bits about humanity uh, kind of magnified yeah. and the good bits are truly amazing and, and we don't have to insist on those because they are obvious to anyone uh, the bad bits are unfortunately less visible uh, but they're there as well mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and this sort of conservative cautious uh, inward looking um, uh, attitude that sometimes may develop among some people let me give you an example so that uh, without making no, no, naming people <laughs> will illustrate the, the point. I was a very young uh, postdoc, what uh, in Oxford is called a junior research fellow. And um, I was asked uh, to teach a course uh, by one of the colleges. I would not name the college, otherwise uh, the person in question would be easily identified. <laughs> uh, so it was a different college. It was not mine. I was at Wolfson. Uh, I went to see this colleague, much older than me, very kindly, the usual lunch, the usual talk. And uh, inadvertently, I asked whether he had always, and the phrase is important, had always been uh, here. And he looked at me saying, oh, my young fellow, of course not, for goodness sake. <laughs> I spent years at Modlin College. Right. <laughs> of course, you know, Italian, not knowing anything. By here, I meant in Oxford. Yep. Had he ever been anywhere else? in the world yep. as a graduate student teaching somewhere else with a position in Trondheim you, know, <laughs> you name it yeah. he had understood whether he had always been in that particular college within <laughs> the college system within Oxford and of course no he had seen the world he had been <laughs> no, for years no, at a different college 
Now, if you have that kind of mentality, <laughs> you can see that um, novelties are not exactly what you are looking for. <laughs> you want to see more of the same because we have always done things this way and it's the right way. We are one of the best universities for a reason, etc. Now, that can be stifling. And for a young guy, or I say for a young individual, a young woman, a young uh, man, uh, coming to Oxford as a philosopher, the first impression, uh, I think, would be kind of twofold. On the one hand, there's a very clear sort of uh, what's right and what's wrong sort of uh, picture, and he or she, or she may not be entirely uh, at peace with that. Yeah. I certainly wasn't. <laughs> Uh, I joined Oxford uh, when I was already getting rid of my analytic sort of uh, baggage. So yeah. I was no longer uh, sure I was an analytic philosopher. By the end of the first couple of years uh, in Oxford, I had given up my analytic credentials. And uh, that certainly didn't go down well. <laughs> uh, but I said twofold, because the other side is also a lot of um, British tolerance which seems to be almost inconsistent. So there's a, there's a very strong agenda. But at the same time, if you want to do what you want to do, well, it's a free country. And that, that is good, mm -hmm. because that's the, the side where Oxford is able to uh, innovate and renovate itself. That tolerance towards the weirdos like myself <laughs> <laughs> uh, means that you can prove yourself. Uh, and if you are sufficiently determined, sufficiently bright, sufficiently lucky then there's a good chance. But it becomes an uphill sort of uh, progress. Uh, it's not something like, well, I'm joining a great, one of the greatest philosophy departments in the world, in our case, and uh, help will come from all corners. <laughs> not quite. But opportunities will be provided. So this is, again, a fine balance between being disappointed, I guess, uh, this young colleague of ours, uh, by the level of support that he might receive, but also encouraged by the level of tolerance that he might enjoy. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, it's a great place if you want to make it your way. Uh, right. It's a bit more difficult if you're looking more for, let's say, an American team spirit where you know, everybody's on board and uh, we all push in the same direction. And so yeah. there's a lot of individualism and uh, not with that, tolerance for alternatives. Right, right, right. <coughs> also, what you said about shedding your analytical skin reminds me of... Uh, a very interesting aspect of your work, which is that uh, I would say that you are analytical in the sense of if you're talking about style of writing, and, and that's it, it's uh, it's a very no bullshit kind of philosophy, very uh, attention to precision distinctions. Uh, so in style of writing, I would say that you have an analytic style, but at the same time, your your uh, your system is of German proportion, as you talked about yesterday as well. Um, so how come you have ended up with this strange mix? Uh, I think, Johnny, I've, I've been thinking about this interview uh, for, for the past few uh, 24 hours or so, and uh, I, I really thought how much I could confess <laughs> <laughs> and how, whether this question would come. Um, and I, I thought that uh, I should, was well, might be actually the first time ever, uh, tell the truth. <laughs> uh, and people will probably not believe it, uh, but I don't mind. Uh, so the truth is the following. As a very young uh, undergraduate, uh, my main interest, which has never, and this is where people will not believe me, <laughs> has never actually gone away. Uh, it was just only postponed in my uh, sort of intellectual development. Right. Uh, has always been, and this will come, I guess, to a surprise to you as well, philosophy or religion. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I knew that there was not something you would expect. <laughs> 
that's, uh, that's why I went into philosophy. Uh, my first, uh, the first year I started philosophy, I was also doing uh, a degree in, in theology oh, right. uh, in Rome. I have to say that at that time, I, I, also, I was also Catholic, so that, that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I no longer, and, uh, and as an agnostic, things have become way more difficult. Yeah. But the <laughs> philosophy of religion, uh, the religious sort of um, uh, problems um, have remained in the background of my, of my interest. I just realized pretty soon, especially during my first year as an undergraduate, that both as a student and one day as a researcher, I could talk to people in such a way that I, as a student, could disagree with whatever I was being told Mm -hmm. because I understood what was going on and I had a different view, different arguments. And one day, by being on the other side, I would be able to empower the reader or the listener in such a way that she, he would be able to disagree with me without being silly, without being irrational, but, you know, sort of informed reasonable, open way. Now, that, there's only one kind of philosophy that allows you to do that. It's not analytic philosophy. It's right. the Greek philosophy. It's the German philosophy. It's analytic philosophy at its best. Russell, some kind of, sometimes, Wittgenstein, mm-hmm. not always. Uh, not Wittgenstein the priest, uh, but <laughs> Wittgenstein the, 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 the skeptic, the doubter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought, well, what's, what's available around? Uh, and uh, let me put my philosophy of religion interest on one side. Is I need to learn logic. <laughs> and that's how I started. And then I encountered uh, the, the work by Susan Hack. Who was your supervisor during your master's? She was, my, yeah. in the end, uh, my supervisor during my master and PhD at Warwick. Um, so the result was a long, long detour uh, from philosophy of religion through logic, epistemology, now back to philosophy of information. The amazing thing, again, another point where, where I'm happy for you to say, I don't believe you, <laughs> even worse than the previous one. My interest in philosophy of religion was actually an interest in uh, how, if there is a God, that God can uh, communicate with uh, well, his creatures. <laughs> you can see where this is going. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, that, at that time, I started thinking, well, this communication, it must be just a kind of, I mean, it's just... There must be a channel, there must be a message, there must be... So the whole gospel view, you know, the, the, the message, the good novel was a, uh, message uh, sent uh, by Jesus and so on, well, that became, to me, an information problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, these two interests, the interest in philosophy of religion and, and therefore in, in, in the gospel, in the, in the basically the revelation, became a problem of... Uh, channels and information exchange and message passing. So I read a bit of Shannon. I started getting interested in cybernetics. Uh, many, many years later, finally, all this came together in a more general view, thinking, well, you know what? That's a, as it happens, probably the way I'm thinking all this is not because, you know, whatever reasons, it's because that's the society in which I live. It's right. a society dominated by communication, by information technology. So a bit of self-reflection made me realize that the glasses were on the nose. Right. <laughs> I didn't have to look around. <laughs> I had been wearing in the glasses all the time. Uh, and the glasses that I thought I was wearing was what I, these days I call the philosophy of information. But if I have enough time on, on, on Earth... <laughs> Uh, if there is enough time uh, and enough intelligence and enough will, I will go back one day to my philosophy of religion problem right. because that that is where the answer lies. Wow, that's interesting. It, that makes sense, I think, with regard to your informational structural realism as well. It's, 
you are of course a, a Kantian by heart uh, when it comes to metaphysics, but at the same time, can we at least get a glimpse of this noumenon uh, to understand something about what's going on behind there? And and I guess that is sort of a godlike uh, realm, so to speak, as well. There is something of that, and um, and the, uh, I used to be much more of a Kantian myself than, uh, or at least I, I thought I was. Um, and again, I, I never liked those labels, but at the same time. One has to be humble enough to realize where some ideas are coming, and it's pointless to pretend that uh, you know, influences are not there. So, uh, in the past, again and again, you might be asked, "Oh, who, who do you think you've not learned most from? Mm-hmm. What's your favorite philosopher?" And again, more of a pub-like uh, conversation. But the idea is simple, and I have to say that uh, the philosophers from whom I learn most are certainly Plato, Descartes, and Kant. That's the tradition that I, I find closer to my heart exactly so in that respect yes you're right I mean there's a there's a there's a bit of a struggle because as uh, every good uh, son uh, in a Freudian context I'm also trying to kill my father <laughs> exactly uh, <laughs> so I'm also trying to get rid of uh, some Kantian constraints which do not really fit with some ideas that I, I find more convincing right so in ethics as you know I've been moving further and further away from a Kantian position. I, I certainly do not believe that uh, any sort of broadly deontological understanding of our morality is um, is uh, convincing, satisfactory. Definitely not. I have much more of a sort of ontological platonic view of, as, as we said before, uh, being goodness and therefore kind of reality uh, driving a little bit more the the uh, moral game that Kant would have ever liked to admit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, at the same time, in the in the epistemological field uh, area, um, there's, there are a couple of uh, points where I deeply, well, this will be arrogant to put it this way, uh, allow me, I'm sorry, I disagree with Kant. <laughs> let's put it this way, as if he were a friend of mine, I, we, and we, su- we support different football teams. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Kant has... A wonderful uh, feature, which is also, however, at the same time, a constraint. And this is clear cut, no contamination sort of uh, approach, you know, very sort of uh, brick building, step by step. Right. Of course, that might be just a superficial impression. Of course, there are undercurrents, connections, uh, interplays between the three critiques, and so on, obviously. But still, it's much more clear cut than many other philosophers. Let's say Plato, for example. Mm. In my case, when it comes to, uh, to epistemology, well, there are a couple of things that Kant uh, supports, which I find unconvincing. One is an almost contradictory picture of knowledge as um, active passivity. Let me, let me explain. So the active part in the active passivity is, the fact that, of course, we... we the knowledge that we have is a phenomenal knowledge and uh, there's a lot of uh, construction coming from the mind in terms mm-hmm. of uh, conditions of possibility of experience and, and uh, first time and space and then the categories and so on. So obviously there's a lot of uh, creative um, uh, construction on our side. And the phenomenal world is the combination of the ingredients provided by the world and our contribution in cooking them, exactly. as I yeah. like to say. No. So that's, that's the active part. But that is embedded in a very passive conception of knowledge. Right. Knowledge, at the end of the day, is a way of observing the world. So this active passivity, this sort of way of uh, building an observed world, doesn't possibly 
total square with our understanding of knowledge, which today is getting more and more of a intervention kind, changing kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the sciences are there not just in order to describe the world, but also to make sure that you can send a satellite somewhere, you can you know, have a different kind of surgery to uh, cure some particular disease, etc. There's a lot of interaction between sciences and intervention, sciences and engineering, sciences and shaping the world. Now, if you take that in, uh, keep that in mind and take that seriously, then Kant cannot have a philosophy of technology without losing some of its own no, fundamental tenets. Right, right, right. Philosophy of technology is a way of dealing with the noumenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you kick the door, you're not kicking the phenomenal door. You're kicking whatever it is yeah. out there in and of itself. If you throw a bomb you know, on Hiroshima, do not tell me that you are bombing the phenomenal world. Exactly, yeah. And on and on. If you are destroying the sea, as we are doing these days, as we speak, well, you are killing the nominal, whatever that is, intrinsically. So from a philosophy of technology perspective, it's very hard to square the active passivity of a Kantian epistemology yeah, with the intervention, it. the change in the world. Mm-hmm. That's where I stopped being Kantian and become much more as of a uh, Francis Bacon kind of a <laughs> follower. Well, knowledge is not about rep- representations. Knowledge is about doing things with the world cognitively. Now, this resonates much more with the neuroscience we understand today, much more with uh, you know, a Piaget kind of uh, education where learning is doing things with things. Mm-hmm. Now, if you start moving in that direction, then some of the Kantian views uh, lose sort of grip. What remains is the fundamental tenet that we're not here to try to know the intrinsic nature of something, but not because of the active side of the active passivity knowledge, but because of the construction that is behind the very business of knowledge. Knowledge is not in the business of representing. Knowledge is in the business of building conceptual artifacts that we call ideas, theories, ways of uh, interacting successfully with the world and so on. This shift means that Kant and I don't move apart because then the nominal becomes something that, yes, you can now know the intrinsic nature of the world, but because that was never the business in the first place. Indeed. <laughs> so it's not like sour grapes, <laughs> which is what Kant has. Yep. It says, oh, if only, if only. <laughs> no, it's not if only. We do not do that. That's not our business. Right. Our business is to make sure that our completely active interpretation of the world is a proper construction. Of course, constructions come with so-called constraining affordances, the data provided by the world. Don't try to jump out of the window from the third floor because you will kill yourself. <laughs> so it's not like, oh, the world doesn't exist and uh, is all a fantasies and social construction. That's rubbish. <laughs> The truth is that you know, as good you know, informational organisms in an informational environment, we pick up the data you know, with our senses, but the data are sent by some kind of uh, entity out there. They don't represent the sender. They are the message sent by the sender. We use the message to construct you know, suc- successful uh, artifacts. We call them ideas, concepts, theories, and uh, ways of uh, dealing with the world perceptions all the way up to uh, the the latest uh, fancy, wonderful scientific explanations so that we can make sense of the world. When we cook, 
we look at the ingredients, out of metaphor, the data, we put them together according to a particular recipe, but the end product of that cooking with those ingredients is not a representation of the ingredients. Right. If you have a nice pizza, that pizza is not a representation of the pepperoni you used in the first place. Mm -hmm. Does it make it any less real? Of course not. It's like telling an, an engineer that just because you built the Colosseum, the Colosseum is not real. No. <laughs> That's the constructionism that I have in mind. Precisely. Yeah. And I try to distinguish it from the constructivist uh, attitude that is so popular in some social sciences. I find it that uh, well, hardly respectable. The constructionism that I have in mind is the engineer kind of kind. And it's, it means that the sort of constraints that we have in the world have to be respected, otherwise things will not work. But we have plenty of freedom of putting together things the way we find most uh, more convincing. Yep. So that's where, to come back to your uh, original question, that's where uh, Kant and I become uh, supporters of different uh, football teams. Right. When you talk about when you kick the door, you were ultimately kicking the Numenon in some sense. Uh, is that also connected to your idea of uh, the sheer fact that something is, is existing means that it is connected to the Numenon in some sense, and we need to respect that. And you used this example early on in your work about the kids throwing rocks at cars in the junkyard. And when you do that, you are actually throwing rocks at the Numenon in some sense. Indeed. And we need to take that seriously and not just, you need to have a really good reason for, for, for causing entropy in, in that sense. Absolutely, and uh, and that's why um, ethics cannot be just a human business. I I, I find it uh, again unconvincing. Uh, it's a Kantian view, which is very uh, human centered and therefore pleasing in a way. Ethics becomes a way in which uh, grown-up, rational, sufficiently informed agents who are also, let's say, sufficiently under control of themselves, uh, take decisions about what needs to be done and uh, what ought to be done. Uh, according to the you know, rational principles. Now, this, of course, uh, uh, the Kantian picture is way more complex and way more interesting, uh, but the fundamental point is that the agent's issue, let me put it in sort of informational way, actions, and the receivers, the patients of those actions, are the same set. If you are an agent, you can be a patient. If you are a patient, you uh, can be an, an agent. But anything else is outside that particular picture. Right. The dog, the building, the sea, the river, the tree, or uh, the last painting, they just don't sort of count. They cannot, because in order to count as a potential receiver of moral action, you have to have those specific features as a human being of that kind and so on. Now, that, uh, especially today, uh, seems to be a very dangerous um, close-up view, not least because of what you said. Um, if we start looking at ourselves as elements of a, of a wider uh, um, environment, then we can play the Kantian game. But the truth is that we're not. A much better sort of metaphor is more the more leaf on the small branch of a huge, immense tree. Now, we are, each of us, is, is, a, is as a small leaf on that huge plant. We get our life and, and existence from the well-being, the, you know, the welfare of the whole tree. Mm -hmm. It's idiotic to think that we are extraterrestrial, almost in a sort of a uh, philological sense, that we do not belong to this world. We do, and we better take care of the whole universe. It's up to us. Now, some people have accused me of, of you know, excessive emphasis on this immense responsibility. It will become, you know, the ethical demands would become unbearable. Yeah. 
there are two replies to this. One, tough luck. <laughs> Just because it's, no, immensely more difficult. Just because we are realizing the ethics, oh my goodness, one is more complicated than we thought, and wow, I really have to do much more than I expected. Well, that's not an argument against right. the ethical court. Not being able to do everything doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything. Yeah, know. exactly. And uh, it's just realizing that ethics is way less obvious and way more demanding. It's just not, uh, not an argument against uh, not what one has been uh, uh, proposing. That's not the point. The point is to understand that because uh, our sort of condition, human condition on, on Earth comes with such a burden, then surely there has to be a way of putting some balance between all the bad things that we cannot but do, because we will, and the good things we can, if we sort of pay attention to it, can do. This is again a shift from uh, some ethical discourses uh, with which I do not agree anymore. The idea that the, the game of ethics could actually be played in a sort of a win situation where you don't get any bad points and you score all the goals. That actually the game of, of, uh, of ethics could end uh, 3-0 for you. I don't find it sort of uh, convincing. Mm-hmm. If, uh, with an analogy, I think that uh, that's the way in which uh, the Italian team used to play. <laughs> defend, defend, defend and score once yeah, and exactly. you win the game. Yeah. I have a much more, forgive me for the analogy, Brazilian way of looking at uh, football <laughs> and therefore at the ethics. Uh, so, well, it doesn't matter how many goals you get. As long as you score more, yeah. you are a good ethical uh, human being. Precisely. So if you end up your life uh, having scored and won 3-2, well, that still no, gives you the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's quite a remarkable series of shifts you have described from Catholic to agnostic, from analytic to more systematic, from Italian to, I'm not sure if I can call you British. (laughs) Looking at the river behind you, do you have any inkling on where this river is heading? What is the next developments, do you think? Well, um, that's a good question. Um, The plan, and then life will take care of it, (laughs) as usual. But the plan is to try to see more in the kind of work I've been doing, um, some of the roots or the possible um, foundations for what I describe in my mind as the policies of information. Um, that's the probably the last step uh, I want to take before going back to my you know, original question about God and his message, philosophy, <laughs> religion, which can wait for retirement. I hope there's a lot of work to be done. But basically, the next the next step, uh, the next decade uh, of my work will probably be dedicated, in so far as I can, and life permits and opportunities and so on, will be dedicated to uh, the triangle uh, defined by uh, philosophy of law or philosophy of jurisprudence, uh, philosophy of um, uh, economics and political philosophy. right? And I see within that triangle a philosophy of information that can contribute some insights, I hope, uh, to the way in which we are handling our socio-political balances these days. It's an an obvious step coming from the more epistemological, logical-based work done for the first volume, the philosophy of information, then the second volume in the same uh, sort of project, uh, which I hope come out soon is already with OUP which is called information ethics which is about the so ethical foundations of uh, of an ethics of information 
there will be a third volume which is more in terms of consequences, epistemological and logical consequences of volume one. But I find that uh, interesting but not entirely um, sort of uh, central in my you know, current uh, right. interest. What I think it will be the major commitment also in terms of, we mentioned scholarship, doing a lot of reading and then sort of reinventing oneself a little bit, mm-hmm. is the volume four, which is the, the policies of right. information uh, within that triangle that we described before. Now, that means that my attempts to combine the theoretical and the practical, the you know, Plato in, in Athens, uh, founder of the, uh, the academy, and uh, the Plato who travels to Syracuse, uh, it's an attempt to... You know, follow in this huge, uh, sort of, uh, of course, uh, steps taken by our predecessors. Now, if that uh, were uh, even marginally, partially uh, successful, then I think I will be able finally to go back to the, the very, very original teenagers project <laughs> of a philosophy of religion based on uh, information theory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a very nice circle. Uh, actually, on that note, uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank it's you. been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, I think there was a great opportunity uh, of coming out of the closet. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay, I know that this revelation might not make sense to you if you haven't read much of Florida's work, but if you have, it puts everything in a new perspective. Just to avoid any further misunderstandings, I think I should add that although it makes perfect sense to connect Florida's philosophy to a more, uh, let's say, of a spiritual context, it also makes equally good sense to appreciate his philosophy as distinct from that context. I would really like your feedback on this, so please go to suchthatcast.com and check out the many ways in which you can get in touch. Anyway, as the interview ended, I went back to the conference we both attended, and I listened to the raw episode while taking the train to the University of Birmingham. And to be honest, I was grinning like an insane person for the whole trip. Two hours earlier, I hated myself for starting this project. Two hours later, I was more enthusiastic than ever. I did say in this episode that I'm aiming to update this on a weekly basis. I'm not sure that will be feasible in the long run, but I will do so in the beginning at least. And next time I'm talking to robot ethics expert Wendell Wallach about his extraordinary life which I think is going to be very inspirational to those of you who have a deep interest in philosophy without having necessarily gone through all the academic loopholes. And that will be out on Monday next week. Please visit the website and do give me a nudge if you think this is something I should be keeping up. Tell your friends if you thought it was worth the time. And please come back next time for another delivery of Such That Cast. <laughs>